Hello and welcome to the Never Seen Trek podcast. I'm Sam, or at never underscore seen underscore trek on Twitter. I'm Patrick, at Angiris42 on Twitter. I'm Robert, at Robert Morvay on Twitter. And we've made it. We're at the end of the original series, or the end of the era of the original series. Yep, these, talking... these are the very last productions where the big three, much less the big seven, all appear together, so that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in case, in case you hadn't figured out, we're talking about the last three original series movies today, so uh, Voyage Home, Final Frontier, and Undiscovered Country. And let's jump into it. Um, Robert, uh, yeah, try again. Patrick, do you want to do the sort of summary of the first act again, same as we did last week? Uh, I will. I might be a little bit rustier uh, on 4 and 5 for a number of reasons, but you just saw them, so I'm sure you can uh, correct me. I can uh, certainly try. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, uh, so Star Trek 4 picks up right where the last one left off. There's some galactic politics stuff with the Klingons being a little bit angry that uh, Kirk killed a bunch of them. Uh, and the Federation being a bit angry that Kirk hijacked a ship and then blew it up and sabotaged another ship. Uh, but the end result is they uh, Spock is alive and on Vulcan, and uh, he is uh, being retrained. Uh, and uh, they uh, cheekily uh, rename their stolen Klingon bird of prey the HMS Bounty. Uh, and uh, they all agree to go back to Earth to face trial rather than uh, remain in exile on Vulcan. And uh, on the way, a uh, coincidental, uh, super-powerful alien space probe appears and uh, starts messing everything up. And uh, our heroes, of course, realize that because this is a Star Trek movie, they're going to have to do something about it. And... uh, they analyze the transmissions that the probe is using that are at such a high signal strength to disable starships and boil the oceans off the face of the planet. Uh, it, but apparently something in that is recognizable as whale song. Uh, but the problem is that all the humpback whales went extinct because uh, we hunted them to extinction because we're bastards. So... The plan becomes uh, to use the uh, time travel method seen in the original series to fly back to the 20th century and get them some whales. That's about where the first act wraps up. So I think the first act of this movie is is very noticeably tonally different, uh, as well as obviously visually different from the remaining two acts. Uh, It is a lot less funny. This movie becomes a comedy, but starts as a Star Trek movie. and the, but like, despite being a little bit of a retread of of the motion picture, the intrigue with the probe is is just as interesting as it was then, uh, and and the reveal about the whales is absolutely crazy. And there's a lot of great character work in these scenes leading up to their discovery of the probe, discovery of the whale noises, uh, that I feel like the first movie was severely lacking. Uh, stuff like. Kirk and McCoy talking to each other, or sorry, Spock and McCoy talking to each other uh, while Spock has amnesia, and McCoy being his usual jokey self and being met with even more resistance to that than normal uh, is, is very funny, uh, but not in the same haha laughy jokey way, uh, in, a, in a very fun and, and character building way, uh, as opposed to the next two acts. No, absolutely. I, I was going to say very similar thing, and I think when I watched it, when I was live tweeting it, I said a similar thing that to me, this sort of first act, this opening section, and then 
possibly the last 10 minutes or so very much feel like framework that needs to be there to make this a Star Trek film before we get into what they actually want to do, which is the second act and most of the third act. Well, it makes a lot of sense to me because um, apparently uh, elements of this were originally pitched by none other than Eddie Murphy, uh, who was one of the biggest comedy stars in the world at the time and was one of Paramount Studios' biggest assets. And apparently he came to them and asked if he could be in a Star Trek because the man just liked Star Trek. Um, And they started to put together this conception of, you know, the Enterprise crew was going to go back in time and and meet Eddie Murphy. And it was going to be essentially, uh, you know, if you think of Eddie Murphy as kind of a franchise in and of himself, it was a a crossover of their two most profitable franchises. And, you know, people started salivating over that. And ultimately, uh, according to Memory Alpha anyway, um, Murphy went on to a different project, which he later said he regretted and he should have stuck with the Star Trek. And they were left with this kind of fish-out-of-water comedy that they had to adapt to not have Eddie Murphy in it, but they obviously liked what they had enough to build out the rest of the movie. Um, apparently, even uh, Nick Meyer, the you know who I talked about so much last time, uh, was brought in to work on the script, but only for the 20th Century Earth sequences. So I think that that giant tonal divide that you're detecting, you know, I think not only is there a reason for it, but it, it is deliberate to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I looked into it a bit, the um, the whole Eddie Murphy thing, because there was not a full script, but at least like a sort of rough plan put in place for what would have been his version of the movie. And it didn't explain exactly what the setup for this was, but as well as the Enterprise going back in time, a Klingon bird of prey was going to as well. And his character would have been this uh, crackpot scientist character. If you think, if you've seen, um, if you've seen the original Stargate movie, think um, Daniel Jackson in that. Who, See, I was thinking Nutty Professor, which of course came along much or, later, but it's Eddie Murphy. Or yeah, that's I've not seen that one, but, um, but that sort of crackpot scientist character who sees this it, it was i think the klingon ship was supposed to appear above the super bowl and <laughs> everyone everyone thought that it was like a special halftime effect thing except for him who sort of was deemed crazy for saying no this is a real alien ship what the hell's going on <laughs> um which could i think could have been a really interesting movie i think it possibly would have been i guess not formulaic because this wasn't a sort of a, a common thing at the time but possibly a little less sort of out there than what we eventually got but i think i think that could have been an interesting film i think so as well however i do think the movement away from eddie murphy be it coincidentally or not really works in this favor to highlight all of the characters from the original series i feel like if eddie murphy was there uh he would have been really distracting from the the, the core character element here because while we're working on characters we're also working on comedy uh, or sorry, while we're working on comedy, we're also working on characters, and I feel like with Eddie Murphy there being goofy, being silly, uh, he would have drawn a lot of attention away from Star Trek um, at the core, and I feel like this movie has a Star Trek heart at its core that, that is really important, and so I'm glad, I'm glad that, that things ended up changing, though I would have loved to see that Eddie Murphy version as well. Um, although I do, I, I do like the the political stuff of the Klingon ambassador and how much that that ends up paying off in in the next couple of movies. So it's a nice sort of simmering 
it's interesting to see they had the confidence to introduce these story elements that would clearly pay off later and not in the same film. There's the obvious one at the end, but also even stuff like the Klingons wanting Kirk's hide. Uh, I remember DeForest Kelly um, saying in the old Star Trek communicator years ago um, that Star Trek Four was the only movie that, while he was working on it, he was pretty sure they would get a sequel. Um, so anyway, uh, they time travel and, uh, they end up in their, fortunately they have their cloaked ship because they captured the Klingon ship in the last movie. Uh, and they end up detecting whale song in San Francisco. I think that's why they land there as opposed to it being for no reason whatsoever. Uh, because they reason that if the whales are in captivity already, uh, it will be easier to obtain them and adapt them and explain the situation to them, I guess, which, I don't know, kind of makes sense to me. Uh, but it's mostly an excuse to have the Enterprise crew kind of stumble around and do a whole bunch of fish-out-of-water gags and, uh, and time travel gags. Uh, so they all split up. There's the uh, Scotty McCoy Sulu team who's uh, trying to build the tank for the whales. Uh, there's the Chekhov Uhura team who uh, needs to repair the Bird of Prey, actually. the uh, They need to recrystallize the dilithium crystals, which is something they can't even do in the 23rd century. Uh, but apparently our big, dirty, polluting nuclear reactors in the 20th century do the job just fine. Uh, which is actually a, li a little bit interesting. It has nothing to do with the movie itself, but sort of the general franchise has decided that Scotty did indeed bring this technology forward because in the 24th century, dilithium scarcity is not nearly as big of a deal. So they figure, okay, we just know how to recrystallize them now. Uh, but Kirk and Spock get the lion's share of the plot because they meet not Eddie Murphy, uh, the... Um, the uh, Jillian, the uh, head cetacean researcher at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, sorry, the Cetacean Institute, uh, a fictional a fictional place where two humpback whales are kept in captivity conveniently. This hasn't been done in real life. Um, because of concerns for the whale's health, uh, they're actually about to release them, but Jillian is uh, concerned that they will be tracked down immediately by whalers off the coast of California. Which is also not a thing in real life, but bear with us. Uh, so, Kirk essentially decides to... Well, Spock creates a bit of a stir by mind-melding with, uh, with uh, one of the humpbacks. They're George and Gracie. And explains the situation to them, and they're broadly willing to help. Um, and it turns out that Gracie is pregnant... And Spock, knowing that when he can't otherwise possibly know that, um, sort of... Uh, cracks uh, Jillian's uh, egg of understanding, as it were. Um, and uh, Kirk starts trying to convince her that, you know, yeah, I'm an admiral from the future, uh, and we really want to get your whales so that we can save their lives and make everyone happy. But, you know, the obstacle to this is, of course, that they sound like crazy people. Uh, anything anything y'all want to throw in to that summary? Um... Yeah, no, I think I mean that's that's pretty accurate. Yeah, I um, <laughs> yeah, something something that I found out doing my research actually with this because you mentioned um that Kirk sort of is trying to convince Jillian that they are legitimately from the future and legitimately need these whales, and 
something you didn't mention, part of how he goes about that is because he's Captain Kirk and because of course he fucking does, he takes her on a date. <laughs> oh yeah, I'd and, like that. I just thought that was like without without even saying, yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, so, something that I found out, and this is just a like minor, almost a bit of trivia um, about that scene. So that restaurant, that wasn't like a set or anything. They filmed that in, a, in an actual restaurant. And because they'd written into the script that they would order a pizza, and then when they went, because they went to this restaurant, they found out that the restaurant in, that they were filming in didn't have a pizza oven. So rather than rewriting the script, they just bought them a pizza oven. What? They, they, they bought this restaurant a pizza oven. You see it on screen for maybe three or four seconds, and then they just let them keep it afterwards. Wow. <laughs> like, just, you, you could have just rewritten the word pizza. Like... But they no, they they bought this restaurant a pizza oven. And they don't even eat the pizza. Yeah, I I just I, I found that quite funny when I was reading through the um. Something else, something else I picked up on as well actually, um, and I sort of called attention to this scene during my live tweeting because it felt very out of place, and I didn't realize until doing the research as to why it was. But there's the scene where uh, the gang are all well, apart from. Uh, Kirk and Spock, the gang are all together on the street of San Francisco, and I think it's Scotty says something along the lines of where are we going to find this stuff? And behind them is a massive advert for the Yellow Pages, <laughs> which seemed very out of place and very over the top as product placement to me. But that wasn't originally how that scene was supposed to end. Because you see in that scene a woman walking out of a door like in the middle of the advert and walking off. She was originally going to be uh, like her role was that she would walk out the door and call out uh, the name Hikaru, mm. which obviously would have confused the hell out of Sulu. Um, and it would turn out that she was at, she was like looking for her son, a young boy called Hikaru, who would turn out to be Sulu's great great, however many great grandfathers. But they couldn't do it because the child actor that they got had a complete tantrum on the set when they tried to film it, and they just couldn't film it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had I had heard about that. Um, it does sort of pay off uh, Sulu's line about being born in San Francisco, although I don't know why there would be like 10 generations of his family all in San Francisco. Um, but I'm... Can we talk about a you know, perfect delivery, too? I think the funniest line delivery in this movie isn't even a joke. It's just when Sulu goes, San Francisco, I was born here. I laughed so hard at <laughs> that line in particular. That was the first big laugh of the film. Absolutely hilarious. I, I think they just allowing <laughs> allowing George Takei to just say things more in this movie was a great comedic benefit. No, I, I completely agree. If you say so, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of glad. All respect to to Takei, uh, but I'm glad that was cut because it was like. That's such a cheesy time travel oh, moment, yeah. and <laughs> it it feels much more uh, organic. Just keeping you know keeping the two worlds almost as separate as possible. Um, but yeah, but there's a lot of great stuff in the in the street scenes. Um, you know, Kirk uh, hawking McCoy's birthday gift without telling him from Star Trek II uh, in order for a cool one hundred dollars. Yeah, <laughs> the whole, you know, the whole sort of economics of the future uh, thing, which ended up uh, being reworked and paid off in all kinds of different ways. 
um, the the naval base in Alameda. Uh, check off in Uhura just asking people where to find the the naval base and the yeah and the 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 cap the cap of that you know aside from the the deadpan police officer there was just brilliant well the cap to that is the uh the extra who actually uh answers them uh she was specifically told not to answer them and i guess just you know her comedic instincts took over and said oh yeah i think they're in alameda and you know walter just runs with it like that's what i said we already know they're in alameda but where's alameda um apparently the other extras were really pissed off with her because she didn't do what she was supposed to do but the the production loved it so much that they tracked her down and got her a sag card just so that they could have the scene in the movie because it cracked them up so much that, that's brilliant i i i think like as well it's it's this film is a lot of small things coming together to make one yes whole. and i think even something as tiny as that without that it wouldn't have been I mean, it would still have been a great movie, but it wouldn't have been the same. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I, we've talked about the cast over and over and how, you know, they, they had their ups and their downs on the on the Star Trek set and hard days and good days. But they all had these amazing reserves of talent and just the... It feels like everyone is at the peak of their powers here. Uh, you know, you're saying George Takei could make anything funny. I always admire sort of his look when he triggers the windshield wipers. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, you know, Walter Koenig is just this hilarious, very talented guy. Um, it just seems like everyone's sort of unleashed and having fun. And the way that the cast is divided up, um, you know, gives them gives them back some some oxygen. Because even though Kirk and Spock are together, you know, just pulling off McCoy you know, almost means like, well, they have an excuse to cut to something. And then I also just like, it's, it's really high energy because they, you're, you're saying there are all these sort of disconnected scenes and that's what's so great because they're just like hopping, uh, across the city at such a clip. You don't, you don't get like too settled in. Uh, there's always a new complication or a new person they're dealing with. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think, Again, coming back to what I was saying about like how how it is all little bits coming together, the whole, all of those scenes, all of those different things, they're all insanely memorable. Like I struggle with my memory as a whole, and like if you ask me to recall particular scenes from, say, the motion picture or whatever, <laughs> I might have a hard time. Obviously, there's the obvious ones that I would remember, but I might have a hard time with some of them. I can remember pretty much everything that happened in the Voyage Home because it's all so memorable. Yeah, it's great. It looks great. I, I think that there's some of the strongest uh, uh, cinematography. And, and it's clear that, like, I don't know if the reason for why they did so much on-location filming uh, or, like, came up with the idea of this time travel thing was to make it uh, less money to shoot. But this movie does have this kind of homegrown feel uh, where... You know, all the starship stuff is really beautiful and really nice. Like, I think the Bird of Prey looks incredible. Uh, I think it's it's one of the just the greatest interiors they've had, and it's lit so much better in this movie uh, than any other time. But everything just looks fantastic, uh, and and it's clear that that there was a lot of love for the city of San Francisco put into every shot. Uh, it really makes the the city feel alive and wonderful. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um. 
that was something that came up in my research for this is that they did because they considered a few different time periods and they went with what was obviously at the time contemporary because it made it easier and cheaper to film but it does do such a brilliant job of even like it's not even necessarily intended this way but it advertises the city almost because it's so like they, they pick the perfect shots and the perfect angles to show you everything from well that it makes it look like a really interesting place to be well i think what's more important is that it makes it relevant like nobody cares about in, in 1986 i should say nobody cares about some environmental disaster happening in the 21st century uh but by making it by making it the contemporary time it tells you hey there's a contemporary problem and you know there's there's not a fleet of whaling ships hanging out right off california but like but the whales are a symbol for everything else that essentially we are we're destroying things that we might need someday <laughs> in the most like blunt possible manner that's the what what the film is is delivering i almost like that the or i definitely like that the environmental message is so blunt. It, it kind of adds to the hilarity of it, uh, especially going into some of the events in the third act are just so funny uh, because this this hyper-environmental disaster uh, goes to such a strange length. And, and yeah, there are no whalers off the coast of California, but it, it's just so funny. Uh, and, it you know... They, they go with this environmental message, but they don't take it too seriously, which I think is a huge benefit. I feel like a lot of movies, especially around this time, that dealt with environmental issues, were handling them in this blunt and not interesting way uh, that really I don't think could convince anyone of anything. But in this movie, creating a fun and funny scenario where uh, that is just a backdrop element, I feel like really could sow the seeds for someone to do their own looking into these things without the movie telling you what to think. Yeah, and you know how the original series would, you know, would use a science fiction allegory to talk about a real problem? Here it's using the comedy to talk about a real problem. It's just different ways of getting the, the pill to go down. Yeah, and it, it, never, it never feels like you're being sort of, I mean, a complaint that comes up with a lot of these sort of things, even nowadays, is that it feels like you're being beat over the head with it. It never feels like that with this, I don't think. Well, it's, and... It's, and that's because the IP is so established. Like, if Kirk and Spock talk about how flippin' stupid we are, of course they say that, because we know we're flippin' stupid compared to Kirk and Spock already. You know, we've had 20 years of knowing that these characters come from a utopian future, and, like, essentially they can sort of kick dirt in our faces and we don't get offended. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, Patrick, do you want to take us through the, the third act, then? Ooh. Oh, you know, everything gets resolved pretty much exactly as you'd expect. <laughs> um, they rescue, they, they kind of, I guess, I didn't know about that Super Bowl scene, but they kind of repurpose it um, by having the bird of prey scare off the, uh, the uh, Finnish whalers off the California coast. Um, and uh, they... Well, did they not, was it not the, was it not Alaska that they were being released in? Did they not fly them to oh, Alaska Oh, maybe. First? How the hell did they fly to Alaska so fast? Anyway, who knows? Um, regardless, uh, essentially the, the whales are somehow transported overnight without, uh, Jillian being informed to spare her feelings because of course she is uh, a woman and, uh, they do that and she rightfully smacks the, 
silly shit out of the guy who's, uh, whose scheme it was. Which uh, um, I, I, I just quickly butt in with a sort of fact about that bit as well, because that slap was nowhere in the script. She entirely improvised that, full-on slapped him, and the guy's <laughs> reaction is entirely genuine. There, there's lots of stories like that, and I enjoy all of them. Uh, but um, she goes. Well, it's it, it is clever if if stretching credulity a bit because they make it so she has nowhere to turn to but this silly admiral who lives in the park in the invisible uh, ship in the park, uh, and that's how she sort of joins the gang and gives them the last piece of the puzzle that she's been holding back. What uh, radio code do we need to a radio frequency? I should say. Um, do we need to to find the whales? They've been microchipped, of course. Uh, and so they essentially it now becomes a rescue mission because like it's not any easier to get George and Gracie at this point, but it's like, well, we know George and Gracie and we're gonna we're gonna save them. So they go and they solved all their engineering problems and uh, Chekhov got a bump on the head trying to steal photons from the United States Navy. Uh, which leads to some uh, awkward scenes and probably the closest to an actual like action scene uh, in the script. But uh, they do they do rescue him and McCoy uses magic cure all technology on half of a local hospital. Uh, <laughs> but they they beam the whales in the water up into their newly modified cargo hold and they use their newly recrystallized dilithium to uh, slingshot around the sun again. And uh, they fly right into the path of the, uh, in, in sort of a neat touch, it's a little Back to the Future moment, they restage um, a scene we've already seen in the 23rd century, but then they have Kirk and the Bird of Prey show up immediately. So it's kind of fun because like no time passed in the uh, quote-unquote present when they went to the past. There's this beautiful shot of the Bird of Prey crashing under the Golden Gate Bridge because of course it got disabled by the probe as well. And Shatner has to hold his breath for a while to release the whales before they drown, blah, blah, blah. But they get to the surface and they tell this probe to go away. And uh, then it does. And then we get our coda where our heroes are uh, convicted of all the horrendous mutiny that they did in the last movie. But they make it sort of an official uh, slap on the wrist because they just saved Earth without even asking for a thank you. Uh, we don't know what the Klingons, of course, think of this proceeding, but I guess nobody cares about them. <laughs> uh, so they demote, quote-unquote, Admiral Kirk to captain and essentially cap off his uh, character development that's kind of been brewing from the start of these films. Uh, and they bundle everyone onto the new Enterprise, same as the old Enterprise, only it's got an A on it. And it may or may not have been the corpse-filled USS Yorktown that we met in the third act. More on that probably in the trivia. Uh, oh, and also, Sarek uh, forgives Spock for joining Starfleet, which has been kind of a long-running character thread. Which is a really nice scene, I think, as well. I think that's... It is. Sort of, I, I would say the perfect end to Sarek's story, but obviously we do encounter him again, but... But it, it, it is it is very nicely done, I think. Yeah, and and you could tell Leonard and ne Leonard meaning Mark Leonard and Nimoy meaning Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> so Leonard Leonard and Nimoy, you can tell that they really wanted to 
to do that scene and you know Nimoy is the director and one of the writers and he can do whatever the hell he wants and so it's like it's actor service and it's fan service and it's just this beautiful little moment absolutely yeah and I, th I think the third act of this is again like I said the, like sort of the last 10 minutes other than that scene the last 10 minutes are again sort of framing the film with the Star Trek stuff because it needs to have it there but the rest of the third act like this is where I think some of the funniest beats come and where like I don't really, I don't really know how to word it but it's just it's very I don't know it's it's, it's possibly my favorite section of the film I'll, I'll say that right sure how, how do you talk about jokes without trying to clumsily yeah. redo those jokes yourself Exactly. It's, it's just a lot of it works. It's a very difficult film to discuss. McCoy going around the hospital, not being able to help himself from healing people. Uh, hilarious. Them locking a bunch of doctors who are getting in the way. Well, the comic timing in this movie should be, like, studied in a lab. Everything lands, you know? Yeah, I can't think of many jokes in this movie that did not land for me. And I, I'm pretty particular about comedy, and... Yeah, this this movie made me laugh harder than most comedies I've seen. Like, or like straight, like movies intended to be like, not just Star Trek movies, but also just full on like this is meant to laugh at. Uh, it was so funny. Uh, and and I think I, the, something that I think effectively is used for humor is the stuff with with Chekhov, uh, and how interesting that was at this placement. Of of the uh, the Cold War, you know, because Chekhov is very, you know, this utopian in the future we get along with the Russians kind of guy, and <laughs> well, and what's what's great is they don't say yeah. it, you know, like in some of the old uh, original series episodes they would have like said it like in this time blah 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 blah, they don't say it because the audience is is steeping in it. And you and they've just never they know Chekhov and they know the Cold War and they just have never had to to cross contextualize those things until right now, and they just let it happen. Yeah, the the inherent comedy of just a, a Russian man in 1980s San Francisco running up to a police officer and asking him where he can find a nuclear vessel. <laughs> yeah classic it, it, it is but so it, smart but it like I mean it's a brilliant joke in general but it it could have been like that like they very easily could have sort of again going back to what we were talking about with the um with the environmental message they could have beat you over the head with it they could have made it very explicit but they they trust the audience enough to understand it so and that makes it funnier and like, on top of that, it's a Star Trek joke because it's a joke about how ridiculous we are. Like, how ridiculous it is to not trust somebody because of their accent. And we understand it's ridiculous in the Federation, but then this makes us go, oh, it's, it's ridiculous in the real world. This is the world that I'm sitting in right now. So I'm not going to say that Star Trek Four is the reason why the Berlin Wall fell, uh, but I am going to think it. Oh, you're not going with Rocky Four for that one? <laughs> well, it's every 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 fourth film in the '80s is is, is somehow responsible with the with the fall of the Berlin Wall. All right. 
So this is why. Uh, the Star Trek uh, franchise had almost always been on life support uh, or actually dead for its entire existence. And when they made motion picture, you know, they did. They had such a lukewarm reception that they cut the budget for the next one. But they're like, okay, we'll give them another shot because we already invested all this money. Obviously, Star Trek Two was a big mainstream success, and then Star Trek Three, and then we liked Star Trek Three, but it was a little bit more like, eh, you know, it didn't, it didn't set the box office on fire. Like it made money, as far as I know, but it was not like amazing. And then. You know, Star Trek Four came together, we were saying, from all these sort of weird influences, and it was a big hit, you know, uh, more so in America because the, the you know, the humor, they hadn't really cracked sort of the algorithm for uh, translating humor to all the international markets, um, but, you know, America was where Star Trek lived, really, at the time, uh, and people loved it, and people wanted more, and... Gene Roddenberry, among others, was able to leverage that to pitch once again doing a Star Trek TV show. And the the money was there and the goodwill was there. And that's sort of the beginning of the rest of Trek history. Interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's... that's, um, it's weird to think that like a lot of it sort of rests on this one film, but yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, you look at the books and you talk to the people involved, and that's absolutely true. This this is, and I say this as you know, and we're going to talk about our favorites and our less favorites. This is not my favorite of the Star Trek films. Like, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's purely personal feeling. Like, it's in the top half at least, but toward the bottom of that. But it's a very very well put together movie, and I respect what it built. Yeah, that's, that's sort of like how I feel on, on Wrath of Khan, except I'm, I'm more negative on Wrath of Khan than you. Uh, <laughs> where, but whereas this movie is, not to get too ahead of the ending of the podcast, my favorite Star Trek movie. It is, it is so fun. It is so accessible. It's, it's, it's funny and smart and interesting, and all the actors put in the best performances, uh, especially William Shatner is really, really funny and really lovable in this film. Uh, I feel like it's all of these characters working off the strengths of of who who they've been developing into being, uh, and, and sort of converting that into a different format perfectly. I think this is the the best version of this movie that could have been released. I I love it. I love it, it to is, death. It is exceptional, and I can pay it no greater compliment than and uh, uh, it turns out I'm at least ten years older than both of you, which feels great. But I can pay it no greater compliment than when I talk to people who are slightly older than me about Star Trek. Inevitably, it comes up the one with the whales. Like, that is what people, that is so in the cultural zeitgeist, is they remember, oh, that one with the whales was really good. <laughs> and should we do some trivia? Because we, we'll move on to Final Frontier in a minute. And um, we'll have some interesting conversations on that one, I think. But, um, <laughs> sure thing few bits of trivia um this i get i pr- always preface this by saying i've got this all off imdb if it's wrong blame them not me um but always. according to imdb this is the only star trek film where nobody dies there are no deaths in this film that's it's a little ambigu- ambiguous because we don't we don't see anyone we don't see anyone die but the implied fate of the USS Yorktown is very, very grim. 
uh, because they lose power in the middle of deep space and the crew is like getting into hibernation, which these ships are not really like rigged for. They're, they're improvising and like rigging up essentially a solar panel to just try and stay alive. Uh, and that, that's grim enough on its own because we never check in with them again. Uh, but then you have the unofficial but very widely held uh, conviction, including by Gene Roddenberry himself while he was alive, was that the USS Enterprise NCC-1701A was not newly constructed, uh, but it was a rechristened USS Yorktown, which is kind of a gag coming from the fact that the Yorktown was the original name for the Enterprise in the pitch that became Star Trek. But the question that is then posed is, what became of that crew? Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Um, possibly a bit grim. I hadn't really considered that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I, we can at least say nobody explicitly dies on screen. We'll <laughs> yes. Um, I bet during the runtime of the movie, uh, a bunch of people died in the city of San Francisco uh, of sickness and old age. Uh, implied deaths. The always right. ever I mean, counting the implied probes, deaths. The probes started boiling the oceans. <laughs> okay, okay. But, um, um, something else I, I found on the trivia. A very, very early draft of the script for this uh, was it, a film was originally going to be called reportedly The Trial of Captain Kirk and focus a lot more on the sort of trial sequence that we get at the beginning. Which in itself is quite interesting, but something that I found quite humorous about sort of what was planned for that is that they originally planned for that scene to have Roger Carmel reprise his role of Harry Mudd to uh, act yes. as a character witness at Captain Kirk's trial. Wow. wow. Which I mean, everybody loved Mudd so much. Like, so he the only recurring non-Starfleet character in the original series. And I happen to know that until the man passed away, they were constantly trying to get him back on Star Trek. It well, was this is it. he passed away not long after, yeah. after this, which is why they changed it. Like they, but they would have had him on Next Generation if they could have. Even though that doesn't make sense, but they would have <laughs> if they could have. Um, and then it's, but they years and years and years and years and years later, of course, they now have a Rain Wilson, who of course is this incredibly accomplished and popular comic actor has been like the first person judged uh, able to step into those uh, muddy shoes <laughs> um but yeah i, I, th I thought that was interesting. um another i've got a couple more bits of trivia um with regards to the whales i've got two bits of trivia about the whales actually one of them so Catherine hicks who plays dr jillian in this uh spent so much time before the role studying whales to try and be as like convincing a whale expert as possible, that she ended up like dedicating a large chunk of her life after the film to like advocating for whale welfare and stuff like that, and against huh. whaling, which is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. interesting. So sort of the, the the film had a good a positive impact there. Yeah, especially because I haven't really seen her in anything else, and like she's good in this movie. She's yeah, talented absolutely. and she's funny. And um, on on the same sort of vein. The, so the close-up shots of the whales, predominantly the ones at the very end of the film, uh, were shot using some custom-made animatronics. They were like four-foot-long models of the whales. They were deemed so convincing that 
lots of animal rights activists and the US Fishing Authority publicly condemned the movie thinking that they'd gone and disturbed actual whales. <laughs> um, which, I mean, is a testament to how, how much effort they put in, even with not necessarily having the biggest budget, but... Well, and I, and I also Sorry. think you can get away with that a little easier with a whale or a shark than you can with, like, a tiger. Right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah, water is a great obscurer of, of small details. That is. Uh, yeah, two more bits of trivia. So the line, uh, Admiral, there be whales here, was Jimmy Duhan's favorite line that he got to perform as Scotty, apparently. And the only other bit of trivia I have, this is less, this isn't like, I don't think it's ever been confirmed anywhere, but it's sort of so sort of, like the fans have just sort of declared it canon themselves, effectively, um, as as we are ten sort of uh, want to do at times. The USS Saratoga in this, the captain, we never don't get a name at all at any point. But the actress who played her went on to play the mother of Geordie LaForge in the Next Generation. So it's sort of like I say, it's not been ever confirmed technically, but considered canon by most fans that she is a. Uh, ancestor of Geordie, which is quite interesting. They did like doing that identical ancestor thing quite a bit. What we what we should have mentioned, though, is that she is the first woman who is seen to command a starship in, in the filmed media, which is nice, especially in light of the turnabout intruder fiasco. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And a black woman. I mean, 1986, yo. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, that's something that runs through these films, and I've got a bit of trivia about Final Frontier that I'll bring up. That's a similar sort of, um, similar sort of vein of very much pushing anti-racism type stuff. Sure, um, sure. But that will move on from Voyage Home now. And Patrick, do you want to take us through the first act of Final Frontier? Oh boy. <laughs> okay. Um, it's a, it's a, a fun one. There's. <laughs> Uh, there's a very cryptic uh, prologue on Tatooine, sorry, Nimbus 3, <laughs> uh, with a man who strongly resembles Sean Connery but isn't, uh, who calms down this like this, this terrorized uh, trader or farmer or something who's going to shoot him basically to preserve what little he has, um, but he touches him and like clears his mind and gains his devotion. Um, and it turns out he's a Vulcan, just a, uh, a very shaggy and uh, emotional Vulcan. Uh, as, uh, as pointed out in the live tweet, uh, I guess there's no reason why he couldn't have been a Romulan, but uh, it turns out he is, in fact, a Vulcan, as, ever, as everyone assumes. Uh, and so we learn a little bit more about Nimbus Three in the in the first act with the help of a brilliantly uh, sarcastic uh, David Warner. Uh, it turns out at some unspecified past point in galactic history, which is awkward with the timeline, but who cares? Uh, the Klingons, Romulans, and Federation all decided to come together and colonize this planet, uh, and they really fucked it up. Uh, so you know that's not a that's not a cynical uh, message at all here. Uh, but, uh, the, the disciples of this, uh, Vulcan, Cybok, end up, uh, capturing these, uh, these three ambassadors and creating this hostage crisis. Cut to, uh, Earth, where, uh, everybody's on vacation, 
uh, and basically getting these really excellent little uh, comedic uh, beats and lines and moments. Because uh, it turns out, uh, okay, I should say everyone except for Scott, because it turns out that the 1701A is a bit of a lemon, maybe because it got fried by the probe last movie, uh, and uh, Scott is running around trying to fix everything, uh, and everyone's on vacation while they're waiting for that to happen. And, uh, you know, Kirk ends up confronting his mortality because he's free-climbing Yosemite because that's an incredibly bonkers thing to do, and William Shatner's directing the movie and thought it would be cool if Kirk was absolutely macho and bonkers. But they do use it to sort of examine his, you know, because he does fall and Spock has to catch him with his rocket boots, which is kind of talking about his relationship with Spock and his relationship with technology and, you know, whatever. Uh, and then uh, Ever gets called back to the Enterprise and Admiral, the producer, comes on the screen and says, uh, hey, there's this hostage crisis on Nimbus 3 and for absolutely no reason... Uh, we're going to send you and your barely working ship to go and deal with it. And Oh, and also, uh, the, a, the Klingons, or I should say a Klingon, has heard of this because we still have the Bird of Prey model lying around. Uh, and he, I don't know how he knows if he intercepts or he just figures somehow that the Federation is going to send Kirk to go and resolve the crisis. So he's going to show up and assassinate Kirk and get into the Hall of Warriors, blah, blah, blah. So I think, uh, if I'm remembering the film correctly, he just assumes that a Federation ship will turn up, and then when he finds out it's Kirk, he's like, oh fuck, this is big. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, 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 yeah, there's a scene like yeah, that, yeah. Um, but yeah, some, something um, that you didn't mention there as well that happens at the same time as um, the scenes with Kirk and the mountain and that, um, which I want to sort of come back to just because I want to bring up that um, fact that I sort of hinted at at the end of Voyage Home. Um, is Sulu and Chekhov also sort of um, being in... Well, never technically stated where they are. We assume that they're in Yosemite as well because that's where Kirk and co are. Um, originally, they were intended to be at... Um, the words went from my brain. One second. Uh, yeah, originally they were meant to be at Mount Rushmore. Um, hiking around Mount... Ra I don't... I will try that line again. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, originally they were meant to be hiking at uh, Mount Rushmore, and coming back to what I was saying about how there's sort of this continuing thread of using uh, black people to show how progressive the future is, there was planned to be a sort of a zoom-out shot from them in the woods out to the whole of Mount Rushmore, where you would see that there had been a fifth face carved into it, which was supposed to be that of a black woman, to imply that in the intervening period between now and this movie, there had been a black female president of the United States. Uh, I get it, but can't they just restore the mountain instead? <laughs> yeah, that's a valid point. Um, yeah, I think it would have been possibly a bit on the nose, but... <laughs> I, th I, I think, think it could have meant a lot to someone who saw that, though. Oh, mm. yeah. Especially back in, what was this, 89? 88. 88. Yeah, definitely. So I, I want to comment on... It might have seemed like that synopsis of the first act was rather short. Uh, and that is simply because this camping scene and vacation scene, uh, as good as some of the bits in it are, uh, is 26 minutes long. 
without anything happening pretty much to develop the actual plot. The inciting incident of this film does not happen until 25 minutes in, and then there's still another minute or two before the crew is on, on the quest. And, and there are good things and bad things about that. Uh, but by the time you're about 20 minutes in, and Spock's still eating some beans, and they're singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat, and they're flying around in their hover boots, and they're all goofing around with each other, it, fe- it feels like <laughs> you've watched a third of the movie go by without anything happening, and that's because you, you really just did. Uh, and that is a wild thing. I cannot believe that this is the cut that made it out uh, just on account of, of, of that strange pacing issue. It is, it is 25 to 26 minutes of prologue. Apparently, it was an absolute order from the studio that it had to be as comedic, like have as many jokes in it as Star Trek Four, And Shatner, I think fairly, he was the director and the sort of the primary creative force on this film, uh, I, you know, found that kind of awkward with the story that he actually planned to tell. Um, so as much as the, you know, the whole film is, it does have these well-executed funny bits in it. I think there's a sort of a front loading going on there yeah see I I think this is where like and we sort of teased at the beginning that we were going to have some disagreements on this film Um, because I really like this film and I'm well aware that that's not a popular take at all Um, but what you were saying about the pacing I like I I will agree it is a long section it is 25 minutes I can't deny that that's a lot of the film but it never feels too long to me like it always it, it, it didn't feel like I was sat there for 25 minutes watching that. It felt like it went by quick enough that it didn't matter to me. Oh, I'm really happy oh, for I'm you. Really happy for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, we're going <laughs> to keep coming back to this point of me appreciating things that everyone else hates in this film. And it's unfortunate. And it's, it's but... not that I hate it. It's just I wish... Uh, it was... It, okay, yeah, I hate it, actually. Now that I go to think about it. <laughs> yeah, I do. I don't know. I... I I think as well it comes back to with what Patrick was just saying there about how they tried to sort of force it to be as funny as Voyage Home and it, it's very definitely not. I'm not gonna, like I'm under no delusions there, but it does I think because that kind of content because the humor and like we we've, we've mentioned before Voyage Home is my favorite of the Trek films. That t- type of humor is what appeals to me a lot in a film. So I think even though there's there's less of it in this film, the fact that it's there I think helps elevate the film to me. Sure. Well, and I think there is a lot of interesting stuff outside of the humor to be to be in mind from this this opening. Uh, namely, I think the my my the most poignant thing that I found in this first act is when Kirk, McCoy, and Spock are sitting around the fire and they're musing about their age, and they just start talking about how they're basically obsessed with each other. Uh, like they are their only life <laughs> is is these these other people. And I love that. I thought that was so interesting and such a uh, commentary on, on how long-running this franchise has been at this point. Like, of course, like any other situation in relationship like this, if it were to be that 20-year span, that, that would be pretty weird if, if you were consistently just always with these same people for 20 years and barely expanded your circle, and when you were apart, you just irresistibly came back together. And that was poignant and interesting. Uh, and then uh, they sang Row, Row, Row Your Boat, uh, immediately after, and it <laughs> just took the wind right out of my sails, despite how funny that was. 
and, and I don't mean funny as a compliment. Uh, I mean funny as, as I can't believe that that happened. No, I, th- I think of all of the songs they could have chosen, that was possibly the worst <laughs> choice yeah. they could have gone with. Yeah. yeah. Like that, yeah, that was... I can't defend that scene, I'll, be, I'll agree. <laughs> Although, I will say, I do like how it resolves in the final scene at the end of the film that we'll talk about later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you want to take Act 2? Uh, sure. So, uh, they uh, fly out to Nimbus. They're still dealing with malfunctions on uh, the Enterprise. And uh, they uh, essentially decide to conduct this uh, commando raid so they have a quote-unquote captain checkoff uh distracting the uh the terrorists diehard style and uh you know sort of going back and forth with uh with cybok there and everybody else lands on a shuttlecraft which is later reused many 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 times for the the tv series um and they get some weird space horses uh, and they have Uhura dance naked to distract <laughs> some guards. That happened. Um, and then uh, Kirk fights a three-breasted Catwoman. That also happened. Um, but somehow the rock-shooting yokels end up defeating the crack uh, Starfleet commandos off-screen. Uh, but at any rate, Cybok has somehow uh, convinced all of the ambassadors to join him on his quest, which turns out to be they wanted to lure a starship to the planet so that they could commandeer it and fly to the center of the galaxy and find God. Uh, apparently, we've not been told this before, although it does seem a bit cribbed from uh, the galactic barrier outside the galaxy... There is a great barrier inside the galaxy that nobody has ever flown through, uh, but if you could, supposedly, uh, you would meet God there, and that this is supposedly a universal cultural uh, trope, as evidenced by the uh, the Vulcan being the one to look for it, but appealing to the Klingon and the human and the Romulan and everybody else. So... Cybok comes up with this plan to storm the Enterprise using the shuttlecraft, but Kirk, because he's not a complete dunce, uh, manages to work out a little, little bit of a, little bit of a, sh- a Kansas City shuffle with uh, Sulu and Chekhov, and would get the better on Cybok, except Spock uh, refuses to shoot Cybok, which is normally because it's out of character for Spock to shoot anybody and leave them in a bleeding heap at his feet. But uh, in this case, it's because Cybok is Spock's brother, or half-brother, his pure Vulcan half-brother, which seems enormously significant, but actually doesn't really affect anything. Uh, Anyway, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy end up in the brig, and uh, Cybok brainwashes the rest of the crew using mind melds to be on his side, uh, uh, which he calls taking away their pain. Which is really something that, even as a tiny child, I thought was very under-examined in this film. But anyway, uh, they there's some plot mechanics of them trying to take back the ship. Um, but eventually they're cornered, um, and uh, their accomplice, uh, Scotty, knocks himself cold and gets captured as well. And uh, then we get to... We actually get to see Cybok's mind melds finally, and we get to probably the uh, 
most unironically good scene in the picture uh, in that we get to see the most painful moments of McCoy's and Spock's lives uh, which, if not completely brainwashing them, does does get them a little bit more on Cybok's uh, point of view. And then Kirk refuses because he says, you can't take away my pain, I need my pain, but fine, let's go see your stupid god. And thus, con- thus concludes Act 2, more or less. Yeah, and I think... Because we've, we've had this discussion, and I've mentioned it a couple times already, about how... This isn't a very popular film, and my thing, like I, I really enjoy it, and I'm well aware that I'm in the minority for that. But I think we, even, we love you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> but I think even people who who dislike this film, and um, I mean, I, I did a little sort of poll recently, and this was consistently considered the worst film of the six. But even people who who dislike this film, I think, have to admit that everything from well, basically, basically everything in that auxiliary control room scene where you have uh, McCoy's pain being shown to him and Spock's and then Kirk's speech is a phenomenal scene. I agree. And I think I it's it's genuinely possibly my favourite scene from all six films. Wow. I mean, I like <laughs> it, but... I like it, but... Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it's good. Uh, I, I don't like Cybok as a villain. Uh, as... as Patrick had said a lot of the elements of of his power and his takeover were just kind of unexamined. I also think, I don't know if it was di- directorial or the wrong actor for the role, but he was really unintimidating. Well, okay. Well, here's the what seems to be the obvious problem for me. The obvious problem, and they even they even call the promised land Shakari, is because they wanted Sean Connery. <laughs> and Sean Connery was shooting what turned out to be a much better film, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. But th- they got a sh- like, I don't know, Lawrence Luckinbill. Maybe he's a great actor and I just don't know him from anything else. I don't know. But it feels like they got a Sean Connery impersonator. Well, this is this is the thing I was going to bring up something um, that I found in the trivia. I didn't actually write it down, but it's stuck in my head anyway. He, I think, I think he did have an acting career before, but he wasn't picked for his career he was picked for the role because he was the son-in-law of the founders of desilu productions who obviously created the original series oh wow well. so that like i mean we talked about in one of the second episode maybe about the episode on the children shall lead and how they sort of cast the actor in that because he was a big name rather than because he was a good actor and i wonder if maybe there was some, some sort of um some sort of behind the scenes going on here that led to them casting him well you know how they i don't know if y'all have seen space jam the original space jam i haven't even seen the new one um but right at the at the end of the movie almost like a deus ex machina you know bill murray comes in to play basketball for the for the team (laughs) and daffy asks what are you doing here obviously in the context of you know how did you get here in the world of this movie instead bill murray answers the producer's a friend of mine and Daffy just <laughs> Daffy just turns to the camera and goes, "Oh, well, that's how it goes." <laughs> that's that's quite funny. Um, I haven't seen that film. I do need to see that film actually. Need is strong, but it's 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 got moments. It's, it's got moments. Uh, yeah, uh, Space Jam Two, however, 
I, I don't think you need to take your time out of your day to watch I, that film. I have heard bad things about it. I had been considering going to see it because it's in the cinema at the moment, but do I want to waste two hours snake, of my time on it? You can see Snake Eyes or The Green Knight. I saw The Green Knight. Green Knight's not releasing over here. Green Knight isn't releasing in the UK anymore. That's ironic. Yeah, bummer. That's really yeah, bummer. quite quite disappointing because I was going to go see it and it was supposed to release on Tuesday and they've uh, delayed it indefinitely because of COVID. Well, yeah, that's happening everywhere. We're at stage five restrictions now. Yeah, uh, yeah. look look up photos of the Lollapalooza crowds in Chicago. This weekend, uh, no matter when you're listening to this, look up Lollapalooza crowds 2021. And that's where we, where my city's at right now. So... Maybe maybe we need a Star Trek movie about COVID. <laughs> that would be <laughs> awful. <laughs> that would, oh dear. If it got people thinking about the whales, I don't oh, know. Maybe you're right. <laughs> maybe it's yeah. what we well, need. Well, yeah, but to be fair, we're still killing the whales. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Oh yeah, back to the movie. Yeah. Sorry, I got so bored talking about Star Trek Five that we talked about the Green Knight instead. Oh, right. cheap shot, cheap <laughs> right. shot. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's not that bad. Oh, I'm just gonna cut out every single time either of you criticize this film. <laughs> you have fun with that. Five minutes. You're just gonna long. cut it together like it I, was great. I feel like I've been quite fair. <laughs> I've been, and I'll and I'll even say it. You know, it's significantly more like like pacing wise. I think it's a lot more successful than motion picture. I just like the the ideas better in the motion picture, i.e. the first time around. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I have been harsh, but it's just because it's funny. <laughs> Something I do want to sort of touch on though, and you mentioned it before, how how underdeveloped Cyborg is, and. Like I, I can't, dis- I can't deny that he is, so, and his powers in particular are somewhat underdeveloped. Uh, something that I qu- I find quite interesting, and something that I did whilst uh, live tweeting was sort of think about, because you you get this question quite often: if you could take any film and rewrite it to make it better, which one would you pick? And I I think I would possibly pick this one because I think there's so much, there's so so many strong beats in there that fall apart and we'll get onto in the third act as well where it does fall apart but I think the one thing that I would change the most is Cybok make Cybok A more of a villain make him do more villainous things and then make him towards the end have to come to like have to face up to what he's done like I mean we'll get onto the finale but obviously we get the scene where this character who isn't really God but sort of is Mm -hmm. appears I, I, I wouldn't I mean, I'm not a filmmaker, and I'm not <laughs> going to try and say that I could have made this better than the people who made it. But I personally thought, think the film would have been better if there just hadn't been anyone there, if there hadn't been a god, and Cyborg had had to face up to like all of the awful things he'd done in the name of a faith that was then shattered in front of him. Yeah, there's that. Um, I do. Uh, I do want to say I, I think you know. Shatner arguably bit off a little more than the studio was prepared to let him chew here. Um, He had very dark, ambitious ideas that the rest of the cast was not fully on board with. And in particular, in Shatner's original concept, everybody willingly betrays Kirk. And, like, you can maybe examine the psychology of that. I know probably George Takei and Walter Koenig or Nichelle Nichols might have something to say about him writing a script where the entire crew betrays him. 
Uh, and what wound up happening is, I don't know if that got softened with uh, them being semi-forced by Cybok, um, but then Nimoy and DeForest Kelly reportedly, and it came down to the filming of that, that um, control room scene that you mentioned, they refused. They said, we, you know, our characters who we understand deeply would not betray Captain Kirk. And so everything kind of got, but, but that was the pivot point of the movie. So things still had to happen in a particular way, but the emotional context. And I think a lot of the clarity was changed for better or for worse. Yeah. 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 But yeah, going, I, I think that now's a good time to step into act three. I feel like we said a lot about act two. Yeah. I mean, the Enterprise pierces the galactic barrier no problem because, of course, it does. Um, I think one of the novels sort of smooths things over by saying that uh, the god creature had downloaded into Cybok's brain the information needed to pass, but otherwise it just sort of plays like no one was really trying too hard. Uh, but anyway, the Enterprise pierces the barrier, and unbeknownst to anyone, the Klingon Bird of Prey follows them just so it can create a plot complication when it's inconvenient. Uh, and uh, Kirk and Spock and McCoy and Cybok, apparently this vindicates Cybok in everyone's eyes, even Kirk's, just the fact that there's a planet there. And I'm not even going to talk about the science of this movie, which actively makes me angry, but they're in the, <laughs> they're in the center of the galaxy and they go through, uh, and they go through a big shiny blue thing and then there's a planet. Uh, and they beam down to the planet, and they walk around for a really long time, and nothing happens. And then God shows up, or that which claims to be God. Uh, and they sort of go back and forth with this thing until Kirk sort of until God says, you know, good. Now that star now that Cybok, you brought me a starship, I'm gonna leave. And Kirk asks the question, of course, what does God need with a starship? And the god creature is so fundamentally unable to answer that that he starts zapping them with lightning and such. Uh, and Cybok, to his credit, uh, stays behind to hold God off um, while uh, the others... Uh, Spock and McCoy escape, but then the Klingon Bird of Prey does something and they can't beam up Kirk and God's going to kill him. But then Spock beams over to the Bird of Prey and convinces the Klingon general to tell the Klingon captain to shape his entire ass up and fly down to the surface and rescue Kirk from God, and then everybody flies away and the movie ends. <laughs> now, I'll, I'll, I'll admit, I've been, mm -hmm. I've been singing this movie's praises up to this point, and I will happily admit that this is where it falls apart in my eyes. I think this, the majority of this third act is just crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think... It has some nice moments. I mean, the "What does God need with a spaceship?" line is, or with a starship line, is quite a nice line, and that there's a few nice bits in there. But it's just, it just, it it falls apart. Yeah. I think. And Shakari is just it's it is awful to look at. It, the color grading is just this this putrid putrid color, and and it it's not well masked. It doesn't look. It doesn't look real, in, 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 and that is, and even even for Star Trek, low budget levels, because there's been some stuff in, in other Star Trek properties that haven't looked great, but this it is it is difficult to look at when they're just going around they the got, planet. 
they got boned on the visual yeah. effects uh, somewhat like somewhat like the motion picture did um and it was not really uh shatner's fault or anyone's fault um and uh ilm uh lucas's company that had done so much of the really successful shots in two and three and four uh ironically uh one of the reasons that they could not put it on their schedule is because they were filming for the pilot of star trek the next generation oh god and there's a cgi oh, god, shot in that in that pile that just looks incredible or maybe it's just the one on paramount plus that i've been watching come to think about it uh, maybe they've done a remaster i don't know well, it's it's all the it, it's all they shot uh, almost all of the six foot model footage that they would ever shoot for the pilot and just borrowed from that stock footage for the rest of the mm. series. And it's all it's all great. There's nothing to remaster. Great, yeah, yeah. Then it looks amazing. Yeah, Star Trek: The Next Generation looks great, but not to get too ahead of ourselves. Hopefully, hopefully going to be watching that pilot tomorrow. So we'll see what I think about it then. Um, but yeah, uh, God, but yeah uh, God, the voice is really great. The effect is really weird. I think I think I think it actually really worked and really sold until they kind of gave it a face, and then it kind of fell apart. Whereas it was just like an ultimately like changing, shifting face with this deep, booming Aladdin Cave of Wonders voice. Uh, that really worked for me, and then yeah. Yeah, it really fell apart. Then he was a beardo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a beardo. <laughs> yeah. It, and he he kept repeating himself as well. It was, I, I how about I choose a form that's fitting to you? So you said that like five mm-hmm. times now. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the Klingons kill God. Klingons kill God. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I, honest to God. Oh my, okay, oh, go wait, wait, oh my God, oh my God. You just made me realize something. You just made me realize something that might be a deliberate joke that I've been missing for years. In Klingon mythology, as later revealed in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, etc., the Klingons killed their gods. Huh. What if that's been a Star Trek V joke this whole time? <laughs> oh, I, I hope. <sighs> but I had forgotten the Klingons were in this movie uh, until, like, the whole god scene, the whole wandering on Shakari. They just reappear again, kill God, and then explode. <laughs> Uh, see, I, the Klingons are my favorite part of this movie. Frankly, they're just like the Roadrunner. They just like zoom in and yeah, cause it, chaos. Yeah, it's super funny. Like I'm not hating on it. I just think it's absolutely shocking and funny. Uh, but I like I like the dichotomy of the beginning and the ending a lot because it begins with a 26 minute camping sequence, and then by the end they kill God. <laughs> which he's probably not dead he's just yet another one of these twerp energy entities <laughs> that was in every other every other episode of the original series yeah, yeah it does not yeah. feel like like that was actually any sort of god uh but i like the concept of, of god dying. but it, but he he might as he might as well be dead because we talked about this a bit on the live stream but um gene roddenberry actually considered suing bill shatner because he felt that the conception of the Enterprise going to find God essentially belonged to him because that was the pitch that later became Star Trek the motion picture. Hence a certain amount of structural uh, reminiscence here. Um, and basically he, he sort of thought if anyone's going to do a story where the Kirk, Spock, and McCoy find God, it had better be me. 
Uh, and of course, you know, he didn't really have a leg to stand on, so the lawsuit didn't really happen, but he went as far as to publicly declare Star Trek V apocryphal, uh, which again means nothing and says nothing except for uh, Star Trek V is conspicuously ignored in the greater canon. And part of it is because it just plays really, really badly with some of the facts about the universe, the Star Trek universe that have become established in the various TV series. Um, and I think, you know, it's part of the fact that some of the most foundational writers on Next Gen and Deep Space Nine and Voyager really hated Final Frontier. Um, but for whatever reason, it's definitely a little bit of a, a canon gray zone. Yeah. Um, should we should we do the trivia? Because I think I think we're getting towards the end of this segment. I kind um, yeah. I kind of probably started carving into it anyway. You you so you have taken a fair bit of it. But, um, <laughs> um, so I've got a few bits that we haven't touched on though. So George Takei originally didn't want to come back for this film. Um, he even going as far as to say he wouldn't come back because he didn't want to be directed by Shatner. Ooh. Which given their sort of feud that they've had for years now kind of kind of tracks but he did he has since gone on record saying that in spite of how poorly they get on and in spite of their strange history he and i quote found the experience surprisingly pleasant so i mean I yeah he got to hang out with uh with koenig um and i know because we're gonna we're gonna see this at at the very beginning of star trek 6 and of course this is a 35 year old spoiler but you know sulu becomes the captain of the USS Excelsior. Well, apparently, and this will shock you because it's even before the Excelsior was seen on screen, but as early as the scripting stage for Star Trek II was pitched the idea of Captain Sulu of the USS Excelsior, and George Takei knew it. And he wanted to be that captain, and he kept getting stuck on the helmsman console, getting ordered around by Bill Shatner. So it was it was nice that he stuck it out long enough for it to actually happen. Yeah, definitely. Um, something else that I picked up from the trivia. So um, David Warner's character in this, he's in a couple of his Trek films, and in this one he's the Earth ambassador. Um, they created, they sort of felt that he would need a... His, his character would use a self-lighting cigarette. <laughs> I don't know why, but sure. And they went to the extent of creating a prop for this, a fully like functioning prop that had like a, rem a remote-controlled light-up bit to make it look like it was self-lighting, spent thousands of dollars on it, and then just forgot to use it. Apparently there was a scene where he was supposed to smoke it, and they just forgot to give it to him, and then never filmed anything with it. Honestly, that sounds like the movie production version of my life. <laughs> it, it, it is, isn't it? It is a bit, um, it, it does feel a bit familiar, I think. I mean, um, it would have sent Gene up the flu, but he was already there. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, the scene where Kirk is doing reconnaissance on Nimbus 3, when they show the surface of Nimbus 3, that sort of effect, that, um, uh, sort of model image type thing was created by pointing an electron microscope at a lobster. <laughs> That's Ooh, cool. Like that. Sure. That is quite cool, I thought. Um, t uh, two more things I think I had. Yeah. Um, Nichelle Nichols was apparently furious when she first saw the full cut of the film 
because she'd performed everything in the fan dance scene live and was outraged that they dubbed her vocals in, apparently. Yeah, what I will say about that fan scene is that the parody of it in Star Trek Lower Decks last year just about killed me. That show is always hilarious, but... Yeah. I've got that to look yeah, forward to. Yeah, I'm excited to. for that. That's pretty fun. <laughs> and um, the last bit of trivia, which I basically only included here because it paints the, the film in a good light, <laughs> and this is, my, this is my podcast, so screw you all. Um, despite its sort of obviously very negative reputation, uh, Final Frontier came out in the cinemas the same weekend as both Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and Dead Poet Society, and made more money than both of them. Oh, man. Hey, there you go. That's awesome. However, it, it, it is also the only Trek film to not only win, but even be nominated for a Golden Raspberry Award. <laughs> so that's the sort of the converse. Well, what, side what's of that. interesting, and, and, and like going into that box office growth, uh, something we surprisingly did not mention is this movie came out after TNG started airing. And that's interesting. Uh, and and I, I know, Sam, you put out a tweet asking people what that was like to see those movies. Did you have any interesting yes, responses did, to that? Um, most, most people were saying, and I think this is something that I sort of expected because you didn't have as much, what well, you didn't have the internet and that back then. It wasn't really thought about. It was just, this is the original series stuff and this is the next gen stuff. And it wasn't, because I, I was wondering whether there were like theories of whether TNG stuff would cross over or anything. And no. Mm. Something that I did find quite interesting that was brought up a couple of times by a couple of different people was how and i mean you still see this a little bit in tv and film but part of the reason there wasn't any crossover uh between tng and the original series in this and barring uh michael dawn none in the next film either was because it was seen at the time as like basically impossible to get film stars on tv and vice versa they were very very separate mediums yes there was that and there was also and the and everyone's chummy now, but it took the original cast a little while to warm up to the idea of Next Generation. Like, they went they went in the papers and, like, badmouthed the whole idea. Like, I don't think there's any Star Trek without Kirk and Spock and conveniently us. Um, and you understand that because that's their livelihood, right? Yeah. That's that's their, you know, that that's what they have to go on because they're not getting cast in anything else because... Type, well, no, it's not that there's any lack of talent. It's that typecasting sucks and isn't fair. Um, but there, in, and when Star Trek V came out, you know, I know there was at least a little bit of like, let's show those kids how it's really done. Um, <laughs> but, but there was a little crossover, and you can see that the Enterprise is all touchscreens now. The Enterprise A is all touchscreens, just like the Enterprise yep. D. And then they actually take that out and retrofit it in order to look more retro for Star Trek VI, which we're about to cover, and which came out during the heyday of Next Generation, when Star Trek fandom had primarily moved to the Next Generation. And so it was a, a really a swan song in the truest sense of the word. I think that that's, that's a good point to segue into the Undiscovered Country, actually. Do you want to take us through the first act of that? Sure. Um... I'll, full disclosure, I love this movie. It was my first film that I ever saw with the original cast, which is ironic because it's the last film with the original cast, but it's also 
that good uh, and that uh, sort of iconic for them that you get the picture right away. Uh, so basically, Space Chernobyl happens to the Klingons, but fortunately, uh, they are being ruled by Space Gorbachev, and uh, possibly knowing that uh, in the next generation, the Klingons and the Federation are allies. Uh, proper allies, not just, uh, you know, grudging allies. Uh, the Klingon Chancellor reaches out to the Federation with help, essentially, like, our empire can't fix this environmental catastrophe on our planet, so we need to fully, like, essentially surrender this Cold War and accept your aid. Um, and, of course, the Federation is thrilled. This is what the Federation does. They, they love this stuff, but... Um, you know, and they get uh, Kirk and the whole dig the whole bunch out of retirement. Um, Sarek and Spock are super involved in making this peace with the Klingons. They each see that as going to be their respective career highlight. Kirk has a problem because the Klingons killed his son. Uh, and because, frankly, he needs to start at the nadir before proceeding to the apex of tolerance for the arc of this movie. Uh so he goes and he meets with uh, Gorkon and they meet this absolute rogues gallery of Klingons who are uh, probably going to try and mess up the peace conference in some form or another, including uh, General Chang, who has the friendly trait of a bolted-on eye patch. Uh, we also have uh, Savik 2.0, uh, played by Kim Cattrall, uh, Spock's new protege, uh, Valeris. Uh... And everybody sits down for dinner, uh, and uh, the Klingons discuss, really, um, and it's it's framed in a way that suggests they kind of have a point, um, that they're afraid of essentially being assimilated culturally by the Federation, and uh, everybody kind of reflecting on this, uh, this hostility that exists between them because there's been so much war. Uh, and then Gorkon returns to his ship, and seemingly the Enterprise fires on his ship, and Gorgon get, Gorkon gets dramatically murdered by apparently two Starfleet officers. Yeah, so I want to I wanna just start, I normally leave the trivia till the end, I do want to pick up on just a couple of bits that I picked up in here, just because they tie in quite nicely to the way you described that. Um, I find it, I find it, it, it might turn out that this is just because you already know this trivia, but I found it quite interesting that you compared Gorkon to... Well, you called him Space Gorbachev there. Because, um... Reportedly, um... He... Like, the name Gorkon is supposed to be a portmanteau of Gorbachev and Lincoln, being two uh, of the big inspirations for the character. Uh, um... Which, so, it's quite interesting that you sort of made that connection there. Well, I mean, I didn't make it. This, like, like, this is right from the horse's mouth. Leonard Nimoy is like... I'm... You know, this stuff is happening right now. I'm going to write the space version of it, and that should be a Star Trek movie. Yeah. Um, but the other bit I want to pick up on, you mentioned um, Kirk's sort of pain over the death of his son. And it's something we didn't touch on on Final Frontier, but it doesn't really come up, despite him hanging around with Klingons a bit, especially at the end of that movie. Um, but something that was in a deleted scene that sort of maybe explains why that pain is more brought to the forefront now in this movie where it wasn't in the last one is that originally they there was planned to be an extra scene where uh, Kirk would learn of the death of Carol Marcus 
Okay. Um, as she was supposed to have died off screen, and potentially that's maybe why this sort of pain had come up and been more, was more fresh to him in this movie. Yeah, I mean, to me, there's the the there's two kind of meta explanations, and one is the previously mentioned memory holding of Star Trek V, because uh, in that case, it doesn't contradict anything that we've seen, um, and the other is that, you know. Essentially, the the needs of the character in the the in his entire history of being a character, Captain Kirk's needs were subordinated to the needs of telling this story of the Federation and the Klingons. So somebody had to go on the tolerant on the journey from intolerance to tolerance, and nobody really fit that mold quite like Captain Kirk. And so, uh, just as he did on Star Trek II, uh, director Nicholas Meyer kind of uh, shamelessly manipulated uh, Shatner both on set and in the edit to get the performance that he wanted that fit the story. And to be fair, at the end of the movie, Kirk's the hero, which is the way it should be. Yeah. Although, more on that when we get to Act right. 3. And, and I love that this movie immediately kicks off to such... A, a fast start in comparison to Star Trek V, which I watched immediately before this movie. This movie kicks off with a bang. Your inciting incident is like a minute into the movie, and suddenly you're on the Shakespearean political thriller journey uh, that I think is just, it's so strong. The relationships between these characters are so strong. Its connections to the real world at the time were so interesting. This movie coming out just so shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, elevating some of those Cold War tensions that were touched on uh, in Star Trek IV. Really, I feel like this movie comes together in this first act to a, a really strong start that is, 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 is really intelligent. It, it feels so densely smart, uh, and I yes. love that. Yes, but what's what's funny also that you mentioned, I absolutely agree, you know, between Nick Meyer and Leonard Nimoy, this is a very literate film. But also, you made me realize this, it literally starts with a bang. And I think by it, it's not close. By a wide margin, this is the movie out of these six that most is like the beats of a modern blockbuster. Like, Star Trek Six is, like, catching up to how movies are. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think I can agree with that. Uh, Sam, I, I know that, the, not to get too ahead of ourselves, I know that you'd rank this movie quite low on your on your listing of the six. Uh, does any of that come in in this first act? Because I'm, I'm really interested to hear about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a feeling this was going to come up. <laughs> um, it's a really difficult one, because I think, some of it does come down to what you were both just saying about how this feels the most like a modern blockbuster. And I think that almost, to me, that's almost not a positive thing. Because Star Trek is always, especially because, obviously, my experience of Star Trek has been almost completely the original series. It's always been very unique and very batshit and out there. And <laughs> I, I, I don't... I can't point to anything in this film and say that's why I don't like it. And it, it's not even that I don't like it. I do like it. It just doesn't stand out to me at all. It feels very... And I, I, I've, I've said a few times that whilst watching Star Trek, a lot of times I see things and think, 
that's a bit tropey, and then realise that actually this was probably <laughs> the beginning of that trope. But it it does feel very formulaic to me. Oh, and so many... Sorry, to directly sort of riff on that, um, this movie doesn't really get credit for that opening uh, bang with the with the, the shockwave, the, the circular shockwave radiating out from the sphere. That was so copied that even Star Wars stole it and retroactively put it in in the special edition star wars and return of the jedi but everybody was doing that for a while that's it but i think like and again this comes down to part of why i do this like why i started this project in the first place because i find it very interesting to see how much difference there is watching this new now compared to people who've been part of the fandom for years and i think this is something yeah, that yeah. is a big difference because to people like yourself who saw this years ago old <laughs> i'm not i you said it not me um but i'm allowed to say it it doesn't feel as formulaic because it was the start of a lot of these tropes whereas to me because i'm coming into it having never seen it before all i'm doing is watching it and going well that's a bit like that film and that's a bit like that <laughs> film and that's and it, i think that's possibly why it why it's a lot lower on my rankings well in a broader sense that's why i love why I love you doing what you're doing because you're doing this pop culture archaeology. And what you say about six is almost the way I feel about four. That is an unimpeachable movie. There's nothing I would change about it. It just doesn't vibe with me enough so that it's in my regular like rotation. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it really comes to you know, you can't help what you what clicks with you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'm glad that you guys came in and I was like, I don't really like Star Trek 2. And you guys weren't like, you idiot. You stupid moron. Don't you know it's the best one? Uh, Sorry, we'll wait. We'll, we'll, we'll let the followers do that for us. <laughs> Actually, surprisingly, no one. I was I was shocked. I, I was looking at the responses. Maybe maybe the pendulum is finally swinging the other way. Like, I remember when Star Trek 4 had to be your favorite. And then I remember when Star Trek 2 had to be your favorite. And now it's kind of coming around to Star Trek VI, which was already my favorite, so that feels good. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I we I won't go into this too much because I did a, a tweet thread about it, and it's boring as it is <laughs> as a tweet thread. But um, I did do a lot of sort of working with some stats uh, recently based on what films people ranked from best to worst, and Rafa Khan is still like almost always ranked the best, but when I sort of worked out I sort of turned them into scores to try and work out how far apart they were and Undiscovered Country is only like a tiny bit behind Rathakani in terms of how many people rate it as their favourite and that is a genuine shift because it was a little bit of a I mean the the Simpsons ran a joke about it about how old everyone was now like it was a, li a little bit of a people didn't di it it's got a little bit of that cult energy. Like, it, it really found its footing on home video, even though it's obviously made for a theater. Act 2, where uh, Spock uh, lampshades the extent to which he is Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so, in actually rather a classy uh, maneuver, uh, Kirk and McCoy uh, beam over to the Klingon ship after surrendering the Enterprise to them. Uh... And, uh, but not before Spock uh, can pat, uh, pat Kirk on the back, which will become incredibly important. Uh, 
Uh, Kirk and McCoy beam over, and McCoy tries to save Gorkon's life, but, you know, he can't do it. He doesn't have the experience. And also, the man has a four-inch-wide phaser hole in his chest. Uh, there's Pepto-Bismol colored blood everywhere. Uh, and General Chang, of course, has the pair arrested. And, uh... The Enterprise is uh, ordered to return to base because there's all this conflicting information. So Scott physically verifies that the Enterprise did not fire. All of its torpedoes are still there. But the databanks of the ship say that there's two torpedoes missing, meaning that somebody wants to create confusion as to what really happened. And, of course, the Klingons describe the Assassins as wearing Enterprise uniforms. Uh... So Kirk and McCoy uh, are subject to possibly one of the most imitated and parodied alien trials of all time. But it's actually a great scene that's got all these, it's got drama, it's got humor, it's got wharf. Um, it's got a blatant conflict of interest because uh, General Chang, the man who arrested them, is also the prosecutor. But uh, Christopher Plummer is great, so we'll forgive it. Uh, and what winds up happening is the, the subtext is the Klingons need the peace process to proceed because they're screwed without it. Uh, so the, you know, Kirk and McCoy are, are the sacrificial lambs. They are sent to the, rather than being executed, they're sent to the, uh, Klingon prison planet and Starfleet has to promise fingers crossed that they're not going to try and rescue them. Uh, and then the peace conference is rescheduled on a mysterious planet. Spock disobeys orders to return to base by doing the old tell Scotty to fake an engine problem in another pretty funny scene. Because he wants to search the Enterprise for evidence of who tampered with the databanks and who beamed over to the Klingon ship and got covered in Klingon blood from microwaving every Klingon between... Uh, Gorkon's office in the transporter room. Uh, so they search the ship and they search the ship some more. Uh, Kirk is uh, able to uh, arrange an escape with an alien mercenary, which I'll let you two uh, elaborate on the nature of this individual. But it turns out that being a mercenary, she's aligned with the conspiracy that uh, killed Gorkon in the first place and now is trying to cut off all the loose ends. Uh, and uh, big surprise, it's General Chang and also some nobodies that we don't really care about, even though Admiral Cartwright did show up in Star Trek IV and is played by the great Brock Peters. Uh, but because of the little patch that Spock slapped on Kirk's back, they're able to detect them from light years away and uh, beam them up once they escape the prison, just in time to not hear that uh, General Chang is the bad guy. Uh, but they discover the gravity boots and the uniforms on the Enterprise with Klingon blood on them. They also discover uh, two dead assassins. Obviously, someone killed them. And shock surprise, it's the new character, uh, Valeris. And in a super cringy scene, uh, Spock forces her to mind meld. And that's when they find out that Chang and Cartwright are the bad guys, but they get no other useful information. Uh, and then they call Sulu, who tells them where to go. And that sets us up for Act 3, because 
Chang is on the way to uh, Kittimer, a planet first mentioned in Next Generation, where it turns out the peace conference is happening, with his super bird of prey that can fire when cloaked, which they don't even have in the Next Generation, 100 years later. Uh, and that, of course, was the source of the fatal torpedoes. So Chang is on the way to defend Kittimer from the Enterprise so that the assassination of this time the Federation president can proceed without a hitch and hopefully the conspirators get what they want, which is endless race war, essentially. They're not good people. No. <laughs> and I think that... So you touched on something there that brings me back to my point about how I find this film quite formulaic. And that's the sort of... the. I'm, I'm going to quite generously call it a twist um, <laughs> that Valeris is the sort of bad guy on the Enterprise. And, like, I know that, again, this was possibly an early example of this, so I can't necessarily call it tropey. But there are so many very, very obvious hints that it's her throughout the film. And it's like the, the film wants me to be surprised. Like, there's the scene where... Um, where Spock and Scotty are discussing what's happened and Spock says well someone must have tampered with the memory banks then and literally the second he says that Valeris pops up out of fucking nowhere and it's like it's not subtle I don't think at yeah, all I agree. Yeah, yeah I agree I, I mean I saw this movie when I was really young and it played better um, but it's you know it it winds up feeling a little lightweight. I mean, Kim Cattrall does very good work, and so does Leonard Nimoy. And to the extent that they can sell this new character, they do. Partly by tying it into the theme of the film that the time of the original series crew has now passed, and they have to patch the torch. And Spock literally tells her, I'm retiring, and passes the cup to her. So they... They put in the work. Um, I do think that uh, we're a little bit more sensitive to twists like that in sci-fi in particular now because we... Star Trek VI is essentially a political thriller in sci-fi clothes just like Star Trek IV is a fish-out-of-water comedy in sci-fi clothes, but we get a lot more of that now. Like, even the Star Wars prequels were kind of political thrillers. So it... I, it is something that I think you point out it landed a bit better in 1991. Um, and also what's worth considering is that Valeris was supposed to be Savick. And that would have hurt. Um, I think that's a twist of the knife. And there are a few reasons why it wasn't Savick. The actor wasn't available. Um, too much was tied in with Savick, including possibly being the mother of uh, Spock's child. And the legend is... Though it's not clear why he would care, because he had very little to do with this character's inception. But the legend is that one of Gene's last notes on the franchise was not to make Savick a traitor. Because she was too popular, even though she was a secondary character. But she was in the DC comics and all sorts of other stuff. So I did. I, I came across a bit sort of related to this while doing my research. And again, I don't know how true this is, whether it's sort of apocryphal or what. But from what I read, the understanding... So, from what I understand, Kim Cattrall was originally approached to play Savick right back in uh, Rafa Khan. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I didn't know she was working back then. I, Again, I'm not 100% sure on this. I might be remembering wrong, or I might be sort of reading things that aren't 100% true. But from what I understood, she was 
the first choice to play Savik right back then. She was too busy, so they cast, obviously, the other two actresses who ended up playing her. And then they came back to her for this film and said, we want you in Star Trek. And she said, I will do it, but I am not playing Savik because I'm not being the third person to play that role. I mean, that's I hadn't heard that, but that's fair, and that's interesting. But like I said, I, I knew there were several reasons why they eventually didn't go that way, um, but, you, you know, Spock's allowed to have more than one Vulcan female protege. Right. So, fair, pl fair uh, play. I think, I think uh, there's a large segment of this movie, which is what kind of holds some of it down for me. I, I mean, I love this movie, but there is a large, largely inconsequential section of this movie that takes place in the prison and the mine. With with uh, uh, Kirk and and uh, and McCoy, that just does not really go anywhere. There's a there's another traitor plot twist. There's it's kind of like its own miniature film in this movie, and I felt like that really went on far too long, uh, which I found to be disappointing because it really detracted from the political thriller. And I whenever that was happening, I was just thinking, oh man, I really want to go back to the stuff with the Klingons, and and, and that that is a large disappointment. I, I get that. I get that. I definitely do get that. Um, what what does save those scenes for me uh, almost exclusively is uh, McCoy commenting on all the Star Trek tropes that are happening yeah. to Kirk. What, what does he say uh, when when say, uh, Kirk has just made out with this woman who is 30 years younger than him? It's, what is it with you anyway? <laughs> yeah. That was, that was a great line. Although, I will say, so that woman, this, the shapeshifter woman, Bit what? of stunt casting there. Uh, David Bowie's uh, wife. I don't know if at the time or later. Oh right, okay. Um, but something that like I didn't fully understand with this, and it made my enjoyment of that a lot more. So, do we get any explanation as to which of the forms she takes is her natural form? Nah, and they never use that particular species again. Because at one point she morphs into a child. Mm -hmm. And she made out with Kirk. Yeah. yeah, but she just did that to get out of the shackles, right? I mean, I, I mean, most of the shapeshifters we've seen in Trek do not, and there have been several. They don't have a remotely humanoid base form, so I think it's all everything that we see is 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 purposeful. Like she's got the strength form, and she's got the seductive form, and she's got the tiny escape form um and then the only other one we see is her specifically trying to stall kirk by appearing as himself it was a really funny scene yeah and you gotta say and, and i think you could already see shatner for all of his many faults um he had a kind of a thin skin for a little while about playing captain kirk which you can understand when you look at his career um and he, and, and, you know, having had a successful career, but it always sort of coming back to having played Captain Kirk. Uh, but I think by then you can see some of the humor that he was bringing to conventions. Because a few years later, I saw him at a Star Trek convention and he was hysterical. And he was great with everybody. But I think you can see his, his him sort of realizing that this is going to be one of the last times I play the character. And, and poking fun at himself and having that, that humor to spare for himself because you know of course he had to give the line as the alien shapeshifter kissing me must have been your lifelong ambition 
Well, that's it's quite interesting as well because, um, again, whilst doing my research for this, I came across uh, what I believe was from an interview with uh, Nick Mayer. He didn't actually specify which one, uh, but he's Nick Mayer himself said he was really nervous about putting that scene in because he thought Shatner would kick off about it. Right, right, right. Which is quite interesting. Sort of like it, the expectation was that Shatner would hate that scene, and then he read it and loved it. <laughs> um. But yeah, <laughs> that's the second. Do you want to sort of take us through to the end of the film, Patrick? Oh yeah, I mean, I, the third act is great. Uh, it's just uh, you know an, another one of these submarine-style dramas, um, but it's it's filmed really well. It's very dramatic. Um, the Enterprise arrives at uh, at Kittimer, um, and Chang's bird of prey gets in their way and is just pounding them with no reprieve. They can't track it, and it can shoot whenever it wants. And uh, Sulu gets the Excelsior there, almost flies it apart, but gets it there and can't do anything more than be another target to shoot at. But like, you know, Sulu being Sulu, he's happy to do it. Um, and then, uh, and I'm, this is not part of the synopsis, but I'm going to talk about the changes in the movie's third act later. Uh, the Enterprise kind of pulls a uh, previously unknown uh, ability uh, to uh, to track the emissions that this ship is obviously creating as it's flying through space. And they rig together kind of a heat-seeking torpedo. Uh, and they finally blow up Chang's Shakespeare's swilling ass. Uh, and everybody gets to beam down and dramatically save the day from the assassin and pose, which is my favorite part that I love. They pose at the end, uh, having publicly saved the Federation president right in front of the new Klingon Chancellor, who is the daughter of the old Klingon Chancellor. Uh, and Kirk finally reaches kind of his understanding with this woman as she reaches her understanding with him. And the Enterprise A retires along with the uh, along with the crew aside from sulu and the klingons and the federation are now at peace and kirk passes the baton to the next generation by uh, apparently taking credit for the change in the uh, title sequence from where no man has gone before to where no one has gone before i like that though i thought i thought that was a nice way of sort of marking the end of oh yeah the era for yeah. the original series and, did you catch how, uh, presumably you, like everybody else on Earth, saw Avengers Endgame, right? Right, right. Yes, I Well, they're not, they're not subtle about it, how they cribbed the, the ending credits from this movie's ending credits. Yeah, I did pick up on that. I wasn't sure if that was... No, of... that's absolute. I mean, they cop to it. Like, this is just a straight homage slash theft. Well, it, it works really well here, and it works really yeah, well lovely, there. it's lovely. It's emotional. It's, it's personal. It's wonderful. Uh, I love I love the 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 idea of in this third act, the this grand twist that the Federation, the Romulans, and the Klingons were all working together separately uh, to delay peace, to make war profit. What a what a thing to to bring into a film at this point in time. Uh, Again, it's yeah. a Star Wars prequel, but I love but I love it there too. But the thing is, even even like with the Star Wars prequels, they were because they were a bit later. They yeah, were yeah. pulling more from the like what was happening in the world. I mean, obviously this did happen back then as well. But particularly 
Like, this almost feels like a commentary on something that wasn't going to happen for another 20 years. Well, it, 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 it's more, I think, that history repeats itself. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean you, have, you have Gorbachev, Gorkon, um, and uh, you have, uh, we mentioned in your, in your live tweet um, that the character uh, played by uh, Rene Abergenois, who is later a regular on Deep Space Nine, is a totally different part, a shapeshifter, actually, which is based on the technology they developed for the shapeshifter in this movie, because that was also a new effect, a new computer-generated effect. But anyway, um, he played a character called Colonel West. Uh, he's only in the, the uh, extended video cut, not in the theatrical cut. Um, he's the only colonel I've ever heard of in Starfleet because he is supposed to be Colonel Oliver North. Uh, and I think I said in your live tweet, uh, that is a man who deserves worse than to be blasted out of a window while in full Klingon cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> um... I was going to respond to that with something, and it's completely gone from my head. Um, <laughs> should we do a couple of bits of trivia? Because I've Certainly. just completely lost my train of thought. Um, so we touched on a lot of this already, actually, to be honest. Um, uh, yeah, we'll go with that. I've got three bits of trivia total. So the first one, um, according to George Decay, and I don't know how much of this is true and how much of this is his feud with Shatner coming through, mm-hmm. um, but according to him, the original script... Uh, had a slightly different ending in terms of the scene where uh, where the bird of prey is blown up. If this is so what I was alluding to, yeah. Ah, was it? Okay, so um, according to him at least, the original sort of conclusion to that scene was that Sulu and the Excelsior would discover the sort of exploit that allowed them to uh, track the trails or whatever it is that are coming out of the ship. And Shatner protested to that, insisting that Kirk would never need another captain's help. Which is a bit big-headed. Well, (laughs) I... See, okay, I... This is backed up in the Meyer book, if I recall correctly, and it's certainly backed up by the script because the planting and payoff is done in the first scene uh, with the Excelsior with Sulu saying, we're returning from an expedition where we were cataloging gaseous anomalies. And then he appears on scene in the climax and he uses that equipment to track down and destroy the bird of prey. Uh, so it it makes sense and it's all there, but Meyer actually, again, if I recall correctly, um, but I actually think he's correct too. He says, Shatner said that took away all the drama. It took away all the roles for everybody else um, because Sue was just Sulu on that one ship. And, and Kirk had also been the center of the drama. It was very deus ex machina. Uh, and so we lost some points on logic because Uhura has to introduce this idea that, oh yeah, the Enterprise was also cataloging gaseous anomalies. Uh, but it gives Spock and McCoy this whole delightful scene of banter as they modify the torpedo. Um, and it lets Kirk, the film's lead, be the lead. Yeah, I can see that. I think um, the only thing I will say is on the converse that obviously we're saying that Shatner said, oh, it took away from the crew. I think the one downside of that is that it leaves Takei with very little to do in this film. He's not... He, I, I would have liked to have seen a lot more of him, I think. I think he's sidelined a lot in this because he's off on the Excelsior doing his own thing. Yeah, it, you know, it's... it's it gives and it takes away. Um, 
there was a very real possibility for a number of years uh, of getting a Captain Sulu on the Excelsior series greenlit. Um, the closest that they got was they got a special, which is actually, you know, not bad for Voyager, but they got a special on, on Voyager that essentially is like the flip side. It's everything the Excelsior was doing during this movie. So they do go back and, and fill that in a bit. Um, but I, I, you know, I get what you're saying, you know, even if Sulu was going to be the deus ex machina, like that was his thing that he was going to do, but he is involved in the inciting incident and it feels like he helps at the end, I think. You know, emotionally, I think it's there, even if you can sort of dig into the plot mechanics a little. Yeah, I, I see that. Um, but yeah, I only had a couple of other bits of trivia. So um, this is not the most interesting trivia, but I'll be honest, I was writing this down in the last 10 minutes before <laughs> we recorded, and I was rushing by this point. Um, uh there was originally a line in the script, so sort of talking about how, because something we didn't touch on that much actually is that a, a large theme of this film revolves around sort of how even in this sort of supposedly uh, uh, utopian future, there is still a lot of bigotry and a lot of sort mm. of internalized hatred. In the in this case, being direct towards the Klingons, and there was supposed to be a scene where they were sort of discussing the Klingons, and doing the whole, well, maybe that this is supposed to be quite early on, I should say. Doing yeah, yeah. The, maybe they're not so bad thing. And Ahura was supposed to chime in with uh, with the line, yeah, but would you let your daughter marry Interesting. one? Interesting. Which is Interesting. a line. Uh, reportedly, apparently, Michelle Nichols right. just flat out refused <laughs> to record that line. She, she uh, said that Ahura would not, would not say that. Apparently, she also refused to give the guess who's coming to dinner line. Yes, she, I, I read and, that too. They had to give that to Koenig instead. And then Brock Peters, who I always want to call the great Brock Peters. Uh, this is not his finest role, but he has other roles in Star Trek and Star Wars that are phenomenal. Um, but he wound up giving the, you know, he, he saw the message of the script and he gave the, the lines about where, where it was clear his character was prejudiced. Um, but apparently he would like turn around and start sobbing on the set. Like, just, yeah, just feeling that. so, so, like, out of himself, uh, giving those lines. Yeah. Um, and I only had one other piece of trivia, and this is slightly less... I mean, it's to do with the filming of the film, and it's more to do with what else was filming alongside it. So on, on the sort of Paramount sets, at the same time that this was being filmed, a film which I actually haven't heard of, but perhaps you have, called Frankie and Johnny, was also yeah, being never filmed. Heard of that. No clue. Uh, no. Me, nor me. Uh, it's an Al Pacino film, apparently. Um, but in that film, there is a scene where Al Pacino's character has to fling open a door and visibly look very shocked at what he sees on the other side of it. And as a way to try and make that more authentic, without telling him at all, they arranged for Shatner and Nimoy to have a quick break from set, go over to the set of this film in their full costumes and stand <laughs> behind the door. <laughs> so Al Pacino's reaction on in the film when he opens that door is him seeing Shatner and Nimoy in full Star Trek costume in front of him having no idea that that was about that's to awesome. happen that's awesome that's great that's which, awesome. which is brilliant um, but yeah that's all I've got for the Undiscovered Country if neither of you two have no, anything else to add no just thought I loved it no just thought I loved it we'll move on to our little conclusion then so um, obviously we've done this block of three and we've done all six films now so we'll start off with favourite from this block and least favourite from this block 
and then we'll do favorite of all six and least favorite of all six. Uh, so, Robert, do you want yeah, to go first? Favorite, for, for this block? easy favorite yeah. is four, and then second or, or, or least favorite was then five. Fair. And Patrick, uh, six favorite, five less favorite. Fair. I'm I'm gonna have a controversial that, take. Yeah. All 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 of the listeners are going to abandon us after this episode because um, no, I'm going to say so. Four is my favorite of this block. Um, but my least favorite is six. And that I think is going to be quite controversial. But yeah, but you know what? Ten years ago, it wouldn't have been like this is a this is a movie whose reputation is on the upswing, which I think you clocked in your in your survey. So I wouldn't yeah, worry. Well, too don't much. expect to see me here next week That's after saying that. What? What? It's fine. I'm oh. next week. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. Um, and uh, and we'll go through from all six films as well. So, same again, Robbie. Uh, but my, with all six this time. I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but my favorite is four, and my least favorite is six, or five. Five. Sorry. <laughs> I was gonna say. Uh, I was gonna say. Uh, Ditto with me repeating myself. My favorite is six, and my least favorite is five. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's fair. No, that's very fair. Um, I'm I'm not quite gonna repeat myself. So four is still my least. Fa- uh, sorry, four is still my favorite, not least favorite. God. Um, I honestly, one that's is my fair. least favorite. And it, that's it's just because not it, uncommon. It's a great film, technically, but it doesn't do much for me. I don't think. Well, the the you, you know the odd numbered Star Trek curse. That's uh, a valid point. Yeah. Well, pe- no, 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 it, it's not valid. That's what I'm saying. I think people are really back form it and kind of like and kind of like started digging on three. I think it really yeah. is just one and five. You know, people don't think they quite work. People think that they struggle, and then they tried to make that into like a general rule or a gag, and it sort of falls apart pretty quickly from there. That's an interesting thing, actually, because that, that was something that surprised me a lot doing my the, st- the statistics stuff that I was talking about earlier, was how poorly ranked uh, Search for Spock is. It's almost always people's, like, uh, well, pretty much consistently their third least favorite film. And that it's, surprised it's, me. But... It's got some hefty competition, I mean, because you're up against oh, yeah. two and four and six are all, are all excellent, but I, I do think it takes, uh, you know, it's taken this kind of mimetic... Uh, shellacking that i don't think it's earned and i i think if you really sat people down and and said you know which ones do you go back to and watch you'd get a big gulf between one and five and yeah. the rest of them except yeah, I, I, mean, I have i have uh, on my personal ranking i have motion picture above too so i i but i do love and respect one a, sure. a lot a lot a lot so Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was just trying to find my list actually because I had the list of like what everyone's favorites were. Um, there it is. Yeah, and um, like I had Search for Same. Spock as my third favorite. Uh, that's probably my third favorite. Yeah, the the. I might, I, no, no, I think that's my second favorite. Oh, fair enough. I mean, I had. I'll, I'll run through the list since since we're sort of finishing off the original series with this podcast episode. My sort of list favorites started with. Voyage Home at the top. I had Final Frontier in second, which Robbie <laughs> had a go at me for. Um, <laughs> but you like what you like. Um, mm-hmm. 
Search for Spock is my third, Wrath of Khan fourth. Undiscovered Country I put fifth, and I'm still not sure whether I agree with that or whether I would put it between two and three, I'm not sure. And Motion Picture is my least favourite. But they're all great films. I, there was nothing in there that I wouldn't want to watch again at some point. See, I would actually differ from you. I I don't think any of them are great films, and I think that overall in the story of Star Trek, the the TV series has, you know... I mean, the TV series is better at being Star Trek. It's It's difficult to be a good Star Trek and also be a good blockbuster big budget feature film but no one's gonna do star trek as an indie film and like i can i can shoot holes through all six of these scripts that wouldn't pass muster in a marvel cinematic universe film but so i wouldn't say they're great but i'll say i love them all I, i'm right there with you actually <laughs> uh i mean i think i think that star trek 4 is great uh and i think star trek 6 is mostly great, except for the, the, the prison and mind stuff. I feel like that would have been more accessible if that was not there. But yeah, the remainder of these, there's a lot of charm. But the closer that they feel to long Star Trek episodes, and the further they feel from movies, the better they are to me. I, I can understand Yeah, Star Trek is a is a TV show. Uh, that is that is how I prefer it. Yeah, and, I, and, and don't get me wrong, like, I... Like I well, I said I love these, and I, I I'm not one of those fans who says that oh, Star Trek yeah. shouldn't even be in the movies, but I think that they play a secondary role, and that as much as the execution has been uneven, I kind of admire the the sort of Kelvin verse clean break approach. I think there was something there was a kernel of something really inspired there, and that let them go back to the quote unquote prime timeline when they were ready to revisit Star Trek on kind of modern prestige TV with an actual budget. Yeah, I, I, I think Star Trek should be everywhere. Yeah, that's a, that's a, I, 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 just because just I prefer it most as a TV show, certainly. Coloring yeah, books, everywhere. Flamethrowers. Yeah, Flame why throwers. not? I actually just recently started reading They're the so first run, the Gold Key comics that um, were the very first run of comics from track and no i completely oh, agree Lord, put it everywhere they're so fun come on no to be fair the, so the reason i'm reading the gold key comics we're going off on many many tangents at this point but i'll quickly touch on this because again this is the end of the original series stuff mm -hmm. we're sort of we're we're off off the sort of <laughs> path that we always take with these podcasts at this point we're just talking um so but i've started collecting and we'll probably hear more about this next week because the person who edited them is hopefully going to be our guest if he's still available. Uh, but Eagle Moss put out a collection of well, what they called the graphic novel collection, which was a load of hardback books with just most of all of the comics that have happened in Star Trek over the years. And the first issue of that is the Countdown comic, which is the 2009 prequel. And then in the back of at the very at most of these, at, at the very least, the first sort of few. Uh, graphic novel collection books is a gold key comic so the first gold key comic is in this one the second one is in the next book and so on and I've started collecting those so I started reading the uh, sort of the first gold key comic from that um, and there I mean there's a lot of sort of inconsistencies they're working on 
early versions of scripts to try and understand what the franchise is. But it's interesting. Yeah, stuff. I think there's just I think they're they have this this really fun element and they really capture uh, things that I love about the original series despite being off. And and I I think expanded media stuff being <laughs> yeah. off, especially early stuff, I find that really charming. Uh, I I always have. Uh, oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there is an awkward part in the first one where Spock advocates yeah, for the planet for yeah. sentient life, but we'll ignore that. Right. Yeah, true. Well, great. Well. Yeah, I mean, we're we'll wrap up now anyway. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Come on, sing it. Merrily. Oh, no. Oh. All right. Bye, everyone. Oh, no. Bye, everyone. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, we'll wrap up there anyway. Uh, Robbie, if you want to sort of, of course, plug your bits uh, again. Of course, at Rent Film on Instagram, uh, Indiegogo.com slash project slash Rent Boy. Uh, all the links are going to be in the Twitter posts uh, and in the in the new yeah, in the new newsletter. Again. I don't know if you're launching that this week. So if you haven't announced that, uh, whoops. Uh, oh, no, great, yeah, the first, the first so, issue's yeah, gone out already. So. The links to that will be in the newsletter. Subscribe to that. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I, I won't post that much about Star Trek, but I, I'm 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 a likable guy. Uh, <laughs> I, hopefully, at some point, I will be back. Uh, I, I am trying to keep pace. I've never seen a lot of the later Star Trek beyond the original series, but I am matching pace with this show. So maybe one day I'll be back to talk about TNG, Voyager, Deep Space Mind, or maybe not. Who knows? Either way, keep trekking. Uh, it's been great being on here. Absolutely. And I mean, we'd definitely love to have you back if you do fancy it particularly if there's any episodes yeah. you, find you want to yeah, talk about yeah I'm, I'm just excited to hear well. your thoughts on Code of um, Honor um, and uh, you, you TNG season 1 uh, diehards out there know what I'm talking about just woof yeah yeah it's going to be interesting for sure um, but yeah we'll be starting TNG next week and so look out for that next week's episode of the podcast but until then I've been Sam <laughs> Patrick's buggered off uh, I've been Robert <laughs> uh, at Robert Morvey on Twitter and that was the, the final original series Woo, episode of the Next Trek podcast. You Thank and me, Patrick. Hey. Uh, we I all mean, did it. Eight. <laughs> I only eight more <laughs> eight more shows to go, something like that. Um, but yeah, thanks for what, listening, not watching. <laughs> I've, got, I've lost the plot. Just end it there. Bye.